Our scripture reading from this morning is from Acts 14, verses 1 through 18, and this is found on page 923 in your pew Bible. If you do not own a Bible, we would love for you to just take the copy in front of you with you as a gift from us, Um, so please do so if you need one. Again, Acts 14, verses 1 through 18. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kate. What was the American uh, philosopher William James who said in the past century uh, that the greatest use of a life is to spend it, to invest it in something that will outlast it? That the greatest use of a life is to spend it on something that will outlast it. And so, so what are you spending your life on? And is it something that will outlast it? What will your legacy be? What will you leave to those who come after you? And are the little, ordinary, mundane moments of our lives, of your life, being built into something bigger? Or are they just sort of slipping away? Are the moments of your life being built into something bigger, something, a bigger movement Or are they just remaining moments? Well, this morning, as we look together at Acts chapter 14, 
we're going to try to answer some of those questions together. And as the chapter opens, we find Paul and Barnabas, two of the early leaders in the Christian church, they're in the middle of a road trip. Uh, they've been, they started on this trip last week. Pastor Paul uh, started us off on this road trip, trip journey that they're on, and they, they uh, started off at Antioch in Syria, and then they sailed to the island of Cyprus, and now they've, they've gone and landed at Perga, and, and they travel across land to another city named Antioch. So sort of like we have uh, Kansas City, Missouri, Kansas City, Kansas, or Springfield, Missouri, and Springfield, Illinois. They, there was an Antioch that was in Syria, and also an Antioch that was over here on this other area. Uh, Pamphylia is what they call it. And so they go there to this second Antioch. And here, Paul and Barnabas, they arrive in Iconium. And this is what we heard read just a, a moment ago for us, uh, and it's an incredible story. Uh, they speak in Iconium in such a way that God allows many people, both those who had a Jewish background, Jewish faith, as well as Greeks, to come to faith. But then some of the Jews who, who did not come to faith in Christ, they stir up this crowd and, and they chase them away out of the city. But then they move on. They move to Lystra where they actually, something odd happened. This is something that's never happened to me. Uh, but Paul and Barnabas, they end up being confused for, for Greek gods. I don't know if that's ever happened for you, if anyone's started trying to sacrifice uh, to you or thinking that you're a Greek god. Um, but they go crazy. They see this guy who, whose legs have been uh, useless to him from the very beginning of his life. He's, he's been uh, crippled, lame from birth, but they uh, heal him. And this crowd comes and says, this is the work of the gods that's happening here. And, uh, and they want to start sacrificing to them. And it says they called Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. And Luke gives us this little note that he says they called Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Hermes was the Greek god of, of, of kind of the messenger god in that. But I, I wonder if Paul felt a little insulted in that. You know, like maybe he looked at himself in the mirror later on. He's like, man, do I need the gym more? Why didn't they think I was Zeus, right? Uh, but they had, so this is an incredible moment in, in, the, in the church. But the fact of this person being healed, this is actually, this isn't anything new. Uh, in, in fact, Luke is doing something really intentional by recording this particular story in the life of Paul and Barnabas at this moment in his book of Acts. Because what Paul is, is doing is he's being connected to Peter and to Jesus. This is something that Luke does. Remember, Acts is volume two of Luke's work. So uh, Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then he wrote a second book, Acts, which we're studying, they go together, and he does this a lot. We'll, we'll see it in a couple weeks again. We've seen it already, where he's drawing these parallels and these patterns between Jesus and then Peter and then Paul, between Jesus, then what's happening in Jerusalem with Peter, and then with Paul going forward into all of the Roman Empire. Because this, again, this is new. Jesus healed people back in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John heal a man who can't walk outside of the temple. We looked at that story, and here we see Paul doing something very similar. And of course, these stories are hard to believe in one sense, but it's amazing how God is at work, working through these people, through the power of his spirit to build his church. But I want to let you in on the secret this morning. And that is that the healing of this man's legs, the, the people confusing Paul and Barnabas for Greek gods, that's not the most amazing part of Acts chapter 14. 
No. And, and in fact, it's, it's not even the next two verses that are the most amazing part. If you go on and read verses 19 and 20, you find out that after this moment of, of the people almost sacrificing to them, again, some Jews came from, from Iconium, and they, they're saying, look, these are, are bad people, and they stir up the crowd, and actually Peter, or, or excuse me, Paul and Barnabas, they get so beat up and, and, and stoned that they are left for dead. But, but it's not even that that's the most impressive thing and Paul's attacked he's so beat up so mutilated by stones that people think he's dead but then he gets up kind of says can't stop won't stop and goes on to the next town to keep preaching but that's not the most amazing part of this chapter I think the most significant part of Acts chapter 14 is what happens next it's what happens next that's the most amazing part in the story It's what happens next that is the reason that you and I are here today in a church in Kansas City 2,000 years and 6,000 miles away from that moment of dramatic healing in Lystra. So are you ready for it? Just listen. And when they had preached the gospel, verse 21, to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And then when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now you might be wanting to whisper to your neighbor, did he he read the right passage? Because that doesn't seem like, isn't that just one of those summary statements, Bill? Don't we get those kind of all along throughout Acts, these little kind of, summary statements, and then Luke moves on to something else. That doesn't seem like the most amazing part of this chapter. It's not as dramatic as a healing as people confusing human beings for Greek gods. And you're right, it is one of those summary statements that Luke places throughout his book, throughout his work. But I do think it's the most amazing part of this passage, and here's why. Because it shows that, that Paul knows and what Jesus promised, but what we so often forget. And that is that God is not just about miraculous moments, but about establishing a multiplying movement. God is not just about miraculous moments. Yes, those things happen, but he is also about establishing a multiplying movement. It's not just about a movement. It's a movement, not just a moment. It's about a movement, not just a moment. And what you see here in these three verses is the seeds of a multiplying movement. A multiplying movement that's at the heart of what God is doing. It's his work in the world and his work in and through the local church. You see, it's because of what Paul and Barnabas do in these three verses at the end of the chapter that we are sitting here in a church 2,000 years later in Kansas City, Missouri. Because if, Paul, if, if, if all Paul and Barnabas had done in Lystra that day was heal the guy who couldn't walk, which is amazing, right? That's incredible. But if that's all that they had done that day, I wouldn't be a Christian. I wouldn't know Jesus today. But because they did the hard, 
ordinary work of multiplying disciples, of multiplying leaders, of multiplying churches, you and I are here today. You see, the key to the mission of Jesus is not just miraculous moments, but a multiplying movement. And so I want to take a look at each one of these key uh, multiplyings in these verses. So first we see the, the multiplication of disciples. Because after ne- being beaten nearly to death and, and having outstanding death threats in cities that they had just been to, Paul and Barnabas, they, be, they retrace their steps. They go back to the very places they had just been where they had faced death to, as Luke puts it in verse 22, to strengthen the souls of the disciples. So they retrace their steps, going back to the very places that they had just been, and they go back to do what? To strengthen the souls of the disciples, Luke tells us. Now, all, all three of those words, strengthen souls and disciples, are really key to understanding what's happening here. Because you see, in, in a biblical framework, in the Jesus movement, To be a Christian is to be a disciple. But I think sometimes when we hear the language of disciple, our mind can go in a couple different directions. Sometimes we we think of sort of the 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. And and in the gospel, sometimes the the 12 apostles, Jesus' 12 close followers that he he chose are, are sometimes called the disciples along with broader groups of people in the gospels are called disciples. But so sometimes I think, oh, well, the, the disciples, that's the 12, the special. I'm not one of those. But I think the other place that we can go is think, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian, but like the disciples are, are some kind of like, they're like a super Christian, an extra committed Christian. So, you know, like Pastor Paul or, or Pastor Henry, I mean, they're disciples. You know, I'm just a Christian. But the, the Bible doesn't talk about it like that. There isn't a distinction between sort of ordinary Christians and then disciples as like the, the next, the, you know, the elite or the you know, the special forces Christians. Every Christian is a disciple. Uh, that's what the language, even in Jesus' call at the, at the very end of before he ascends into heaven, is go into all nations and, and make disciples. And a disciple is simply, I mean, that's, that's kind of biblical churchy language, but it, it was the ordinary language of the time, and it simply means an, an apprentice or a learner. So imagine if, if you're going to become a, a, a master electrician, you, part of the work of becoming a master electrician, getting that certification, is, is becoming an apprentice, right? You work alongside a master electrician, learning the trade. That's very much the picture of what it means to be a disciple, a learner. To be a disciple simply means to be an apprentice or a learner of Jesus. And to believe in Jesus, to trust in him, is to be his disciple. Every Christian as a disciple. It's another way of talking about what it is to be a Christian. But the, the other two words there are also key, strengthen and, and souls. And, and first, I just want to say something quick about souls, because souls in the Bible doesn't just mean some sort of non-physical part of you that's trapped in your body waiting to escape at death. That's really good Greek philosophy, but that's not Christianity. Um, that's not Judaism either. That's not, that's not the Hebrew Bible. That's not, the, that's not the, the scriptures. That's not a Judeo-Christian understanding of what it means to be human. 
really in the biblical framework, uh, it's not so much that you have a soul, but that you are a soul. You are a, a living being who will endure. And the language of soul really points to the, the whole person, especially the part of us that, that makes choices and feels feelings and, and thinks thoughts. And so then when we get to that, that third word of strengthening, that part of us that, that makes choices, that makes decisions, that thinks thoughts and feels feelings, that part of us is vital to obeying and following Jesus, and it needs to be strengthened in that. Especially when it comes to believing in Jesus in a world that says following after Jesus, especially in kind of a serious way with all of your life and all that you have is a foolish thing to do. See, multiplying disciples is akin to a long walk in the same direction. It's the ups and the downs. It's the tears and the confusion. It's the doubts and the disagreements. It's strengthening brothers and sisters when they feel weak. It's encouraging one another and believing the truth about the world, even when the world, the lies of the world are seem so easy and so appealing. Because Paul and Barnabas, they are not just focused on making converts. The goal isn't just to introduce people to Jesus and then hope it goes okay. But they want to help people follow Jesus for the long haul. Because it's not just about a moment. It's about a movement. It's not just about miraculous moments, but establishing a multiplying movement. But multiplying disciples... By, that, by itself, that's not enough. Paul and Barnabas don't stop there. And, and we can't either if we want to be a part of this catalytic movement, which is why we also need to be about multiplying leaders. So take a, a look again at verse 23. Look what Luke records. He says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Part of what they do is they not only strengthen the disciples, but they appoint elders, they appoint leaders. And leadership is always important, and that is never discounted in the local church. Any organization, institution, movement, it rises and falls depending on the character and the competency of its leaders. Because to be clear, the, the church isn't just a momentary gathering, but a movement for the long haul, and that takes leaders. And the church has never been a, a purely flat organization. Instead, the church has always been intentional about organizing with leadership structures. But what made the church such an astounding and sustaining movement over the generations is the kind of leaders that are multiplied. Because when Jesus taught about leadership, he says, don't be like the Gentiles. This is what he told his disciples. Don't be like the world who when they lead, they lord it over those they lead. No, you be a servant. The first, the greatest, shall be the one who serves. You know, there's been a lot recently in the last several decades on, on, in sales and, and business leadership on, on the way that you become most valuable is become, you serve people, you give yourself away. That, that, I mean, that was Jesus 2,000 years ago. He had the idea first. When Jesus sets the tone of, of servant leadership, Paul continues to carry forward in his letters and in his work, and leadership is always defined for Christians by the servanthood of our founder, Jesus. 
Those who are called to lead are called to serve, and those who lead in serving ought to lead overall. Uh, these elders weren't appointed for their prestige. They were chosen to serve and to be for the church. The needs and concerns and issues that press this early movement, this movement that, of what God is doing in the church, it needs leaders who, who use what they've been given to serve, who use their abilities and their time and their skills and their resources and their energy and their creativity to serve. And, I, and I'm not just talking about sort of like paid staff or pastors or even those who carry the formal title of elder, but in every aspect of what the local church is doing, we need leaders to love, to serve, to create, to care, to advance the work that God has called us to. So are you, are you just looking for a moment to be esteemed? Or are you looking to be part of a movement that calls you to serve? Join this movement. Let's multiply these kind of leaders. Whether we're gathered here on a Sunday morning or scattered throughout our city, we're still the church in both of those places. And would we be about multiplying those kind of leaders both here in this space, gathered on Sunday, as well as scattered throughout in our workplaces, in our families, in our neighborhoods? Wherever you are, that's powerful. It's still radical 2,000 years later, this kind of leadership. But even still, just multiplying disciples, just multiplying leaders, it's not enough. Because if you multiply disciples and multiply leaders, at the end of the day, it will still fizzle out if that, those two things, disciples and leaders, aren't connected to and being built into something bigger than them. Because still we're talking about individuals at that point. And here it is. Yes, multiplying disciples. Yes, multiplying leaders. But we also have to be about multiplying churches. Because again, look at the context of, of verse 23. I want to read this again. Luke records this. He says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The work, this work that was being done was done in every church in communities with structures and values centered around Jesus. In other words, if, if these moments are to become a movement, the movement has to be sustained by institutions. Now, sometimes when we hear this language of institutions, there's going to be some pushback to that. I'm just thinking, all right, we don't, the church, we don't want the church to be an institution. institutions are, are boring, they're dull at the best, and maybe at worst they're oppressive. And the, and the fact is that exclusivity and privilege uh, have given institutions uh, a bad reputation. But true flourishing is only possible if we're leaving behind a legacy that outlasts us. If we're actually, once you get into saying we're going to try to build something that's going to last beyond us, you're starting to do the work of institution building. Uh, but it has liabilities. I think Andy Crouch, who's the author, thinker, captures this so well. Take a, take a look at this video. part of creating something that would go on even after we're gone, even after our names are forgotten, and we've created this pattern in the world that contributes to the shalom of the world. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what institutions are meant to be. Now, this is, I mean, this is not a topic people uh, like to 
identify with. Uh, I think people don't want to be institutional. You know, people will say, well, I, I'm spiritual, but I don't like institutional religion. Um, you know, institutionalized. We say, if someone's institutionalized, that's not a good thing. That's, <laughs> no. That, sounds, that does not sound like flourishing. Um, but I think the biblical mindset is there is no real shalom unless your children's children inherit it. There's this amazing language of generations in the Hebrew Bible in particular. And I think it's very interesting that the people of God are called the family, not just of Abraham or Abraham and Sarah, but Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's three generations before that kind of pattern of the people of God is established in the world. So I want, I want us to think about using our power in ways that would last at least to our children's children. When you think about this too, in our world, so much of the brokenness that exists has happened and is sustained through institutions. But we have an opportunity in the local church to create a different kind of institution. Because if you want to deal with institutional brokenness, yes, there needs to be individual change that's happening, but also you need to actually create different kinds of institutions that can confront and deal with institutional brokenness as well. These institutions are necessary to sustain a movement, uh, but also there is a risk with institutions that they do become focused inward, that they don't do all that they're supposed to do, that they exist just for themselves. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor and has some incredible thinking about how churches and institutions, this idea of institutions move within a city to create an ecosystem of church planning, he says this, the, the fact is that movements have to be institutionalized if they're going to have a lasting impact. They have to institutionalize that they're going to have a lasting impact. But then Keller goes on to say this, but it's also true that institutions have to movement ties or they will wither and die. Because as important as institutions are for sustaining a movement, there is a danger. There's a danger that over time, the institution becomes focused only on perpetuating its own continued existence. That the mission, the actual real mission of the organization, whatever, it's, regardless of what it says on the website, the actual organization of mission is just to keep the institution going. And oh, how that is a danger, church, for us at the Brookside campus at this moment in our history. I think uniquely for us, we're just over five and a half years into the existence of this campus, and I, I feel it, that this is a danger for us. Because we aren't as fragile as we were in the beginning five years ago. And some of you have, have been around since the very beginning. You remember the early days when we were just scrambling to try to get this thing open and it was one service and there was just a handful of us and, and it was exhausting and it was exciting. And, but it was kind of, is this going to work? And are people going to come? And is it going to, you know, not outlast us our life, but is it going to outlast next, next Sunday? You know, is it going to keep moving? And, and we're not there anymore. There's, a, there's some institutional ballast that's been built, capacity. More people have come. We're, we've expanded our, our, our staff team and programs, and, and that's a good thing. That's really good. We're not as fragile, but we're also not as flexible. 
And I can sense the, and I feel it in myself, the inward pull for it to just be about us, to, to be comfortable, to maintain the status quo of something that's become finally, in some sense, oh, it's become a little bit easier. We can coast a little bit. We don't have to, to push so hard. But, but if we do that, we will wither and die. Or, or maybe even worse, we, we'll keep going, but, but just for us, not for the purpose, the bigger purpose that God's called us to. So let's keep pushing. Pushing to invite, pushing to serve, pushing to, to, to express this discipleship, this life of apprenticeship to Jesus in every aspect of life. To fight the boredom of comfort with the exhilaration of innovation and bold faith. It's been said that without individuals, nothing changes, but without institutions, nothing endures. And, and maybe this morning we put a little bit of a twist on that and we say, without moments, nothing changes. But without healthy institutional movements, nothing endures. Without moments, nothing changes. But without healthy institutional movements, nothing endures. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson tells uh, the story of what's known as the Welsh Revival that took place between 1904 and 1905 in, in Wales in the United Kingdom. And many people came to know Christ at the turn of that last century in that area of the world, but it didn't last. And Carson describes a conversation he had with an elderly woman not long before she died, uh, and she had come to know Jesus during the Welsh Revival. And he describes his conversation with this woman this way. Let me read you uh, from his account. He says, It was an inexpressibly glorious half hour and equally sad. For apart from the fruit of that revival in the lives of those who were immediately touched by it, almost nothing was preserved. That revival started so well but soon became more eccentric and forced. Worse, despite small efforts, almost nothing was done to capture or develop theological schools, multiply biblical training, or train a new generation of pastors. Yeah, there was a moment. There was a moment, but there wasn't a movement. And so how do we help make sure that that's not our story, that that's not Christ's community's story, that that's not the Brookside campus's story? We got to join the movement. We, we need to take the next step in giving ourselves away to something that will outlast us. The greatest use of a life is to spend it in something that will outlast it. And let me tell you this, there is no other organization or institution or movement that will endure longer, that will outlast longer than the church. Why? Because Jesus, the maker of all things, including you, including me, is the one building this thing, not us. And Jesus has promised that he will build his church and that not even the power of death or the power of the spiritual forces of evil will be able to stop it. No, no, no company, no nonprofit, no 501c3, no country is going to outlast the movement of the local church. So, so the only question is, when you're thinking about what is the thing for me that I want to invest my life in that will last me, is it going to be the church or something else? 
has to give yourself to the, the work of the church. And, and not just what happens here on Sunday morning for an hour and 15 minutes. That's such an impoverished view of the church. When I say give your life to the work of the church, give your life to the work of Jesus in every single day of your life. Both gathered here on Sunday morning and scattered throughout the week in your calling, in your vocation, in your home, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your friendships. Spend your life for this. Invest your life in this. Will it be easy? No, of course not. I mean, Paul says here, Barnabas say, say, they say together here that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. This is not going to be easy. But will it be worth it? Will it be worth it? Yes. Because here is where we find the life that we long to live. Jesus at one point turns to his disciples after he's said some really hard things and the whole, all the crowds are leaving Jesus. And he, and he turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And they say, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Well, where else are we going to go? Yeah, it's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. But here in this place, in God's people, we find the words of eternal life. So what will that next step be for you today? What will it be for you this week? For some of you this morning, maybe the next step is becoming a disciple. Maybe you came in here this morning and you would, you would have called yourself a Christian, but now you're starting to realize, yeah, no, this, I thought I was a Christian, but really all I was was someone who just liked to come and, and just kind of feel good for a little bit on a Sunday morning or because I like to hang out with my friends, but this has not ever changed anything about how I live my life outside of these four walls on a Sunday morning occasionally. Maybe you're being realized, I don't actually know Jesus in this kind of apprentice model. That's... I don't, I don't know him like that. Maybe the step for you is to become a disciple. Because when you believe in Jesus, when you truly believe in him, trust him, you'll find yourself desiring to obey him in all of life. For some of you, that might be the next step this morning. For others of you, maybe the next step is to uh, be strengthened in your discipleship or maybe to begin to strengthen others in theirs to be a part of this process of multiplying disciples, of multiplying leaders. And, and this begins at the very earliest ages. Because at Christ Community, when we think about multiplying disciples, when we think about multiplying leaders, we think about the nursery downstairs. That's where it starts. Now, we don't start thinking about making disciples and leaders when they get to middle school or high school or once they graduate from college or once they get their first job. We start in the walker's room, in the two- and three-year-old room, in the elementary classrooms. Every week at Christ Community, uh, we are shaping the future of the church through the children's ministries of today. And, and our children's ministry program has an impact on children in our congregation and throughout our communities as well because those kids have friends and they talk to them about what they learn. They invite them into homes where Jesus is is exalted and, and loved and treasured as Lord and be invited to church. Our, our kids are doing this work of witness. And, and research shows that 
of people in our churches today decided to follow Jesus before age 18. 50% of them before age 12. And this shouldn't really surprise us, right? Because Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of God. So how can you make an impact in that? For some of you, it might mean stepping into children's ministry as a regular leader, teacher for our kids on Sunday mornings. Um, We actually have critical needs in that area right now like we've never had before in the history of our campus. Um, For all of us, we should pray regularly for our children's ministry and not just think of it as child care that happens on Sunday morning for the little ones. But think about it for what it really is, which is multiplying disciples and leaders, not in the sense for the church for tomorrow, but the church of today. Those kids are the church of today, and they are going to be the leaders and disciples who are going to make leaders and disciples and plant the churches of tomorrow. If you're a parent who have kids in that ministry, once in a while, think about sending a note to your child's teacher, the leader in that room, and say thanks for, for living beyond yourself, for giving of your time, the contribution you make to your son or daughter. I need to do that. I haven't done that enough with the, with the teachers, with the um, leaders who have invested in the lives of Lucy and Isla. Because those, again, these moments of, of help, if you're in a classroom with a child on a Sunday morning, those moments, the moments, right, of helping a child with a craft, helping them glue a, some cotton balls onto a piece of cardboard or giving them goldfish and water as a snack. Those moments may feel insignificant, but those moments are being built into the sustaining movement of the church of Jesus Christ for the world. Uh, Maybe maybe another next step for you this morning is you say, I'm going to commit to regularly giving financially. I haven't done that. I'm going to start giving financially to the work of of the local church. Right, and, and it's easy, I was thinking as I was reading Acts chapter 14, it's easy for, for me, I think for anyone, to get excited about giving to the big moments, right? The moments of people getting healed, right? Their, their feet, like those are the moments, right? People uh, worshiping you like a Greek god. <laughs> those are the mo- like moments like that inspire, I want to give to that. But what lasts what ensures that, that it wasn't just a moment in Lystra was the generosity that allowed the disciples to be strengthened, the churches to be planted, elders to be appointed. Again, if we're not just after a dramatic moment but a sustained movement, we have to give regularly, generously to the movement. And thank you for so many of you who who do this in so many dimensions. With the financial giving, you serve, you invest in this place, you give so much. It's a joy to be your pastor. And I can't wait to see what God is going to do next in the life of Christ community as a whole and our campus here specifically. We often say at Christ community that we overestimate what we can accomplish in a year and underestimate what God can do in a decade. And I've seen that to be true. And I think about 10 years ago in our history and think that we would be in this place, in this building, five campuses, doing the work. We never would have dreamed it. We can so easily get frustrated after a year of what we haven't gotten done, but when we look at what God has accomplished in a decade, wow. I've seen it again and again. 
God really is going ahead of us, but he's also bringing his church with him. The local church as God designed it is God's plan A for this redemptive mission in the world. And were we perfect as a church? Of course not. And, and there's the old saying that says, you know, if you ever do find the perfect church, don't go there because you'll ruin it. Okay. But by God's grace, he continues to work. Because God isn't just about multiplying moments. He's about establishing a multiplying movement. And it's still going 2,000 years later with new disciples coming to know him every day. That's what I want to spend my life on. And Jesus has given us two uh, enduring practices to sustain this movement. The, the practice of baptism as well as, as this regular celebration of communion together as a church family. This meal that sustains the movement. This tasting of the broken bread and the, the shed blood of Jesus represented in the juice. This is what sustains us in this movement. It's what nourishes us and feeds us.